0: Let's pray once more, let's pray. Our Father, as we have prayed so many times when we have arrived at this hour in our worship week by week, we pray that what we know not, You would teach us, what we have not, You would give us, and what we are not, You would make us, for Jesus' sake, amen. At the heart of the Christian life is the matter of faith. Uh, We use that word a lot in church. Christians are people of faith, people who have faith, or more precisely, who have been given the gift of faith. And there are, both in and outside the church, all sorts of misunderstandings related to faith. Uh, Some will speak about faith. Uh, As though it's akin to the ability to believe in magic. Some may suggest that faith is for all those parts of the Bible and the Christian faith that seem to be ridiculous or fantastical or impossible. And so faith steps in and just accepts them as true in spite of sound reasoning and rational argument. And in this view, in this misunderstanding, faith is understood to be in conflict with reason. And the two are pitted against one another. Faith is seen to be impervious to arguments. After all, faith doesn't base itself on facts. Faith believes in spite of the facts. And in this understanding, faith amounts to little more than mere whim. But of course, that is not what faith is in the Bible at all. Faith is a gift of God, faith is supernatural, yes, but it is based on sound reasons and historical facts, an experience of the reliability of God's nature and character. Faith is, in its essence, based on the promises of God, many of which are recorded in the Bible, hundreds of which have already been fulfilled, though some await their fulfillment. And faith is the instrument that lays hold of those promises. Faith believes based on the facts and based on the historical record and based on experience with God. Faith in this sense is chiefly rational. But faith in the Bible does much more than embrace the facts as true, and this is the supernatural component. As one theologian has put it, faith involves three things. Faith first of all involves knowledge, and that's what I've been talking about up to this point, knowledge of the facts, and belief in those facts as true that God, in fact, created the world, that Jesus Christ is God's own Son, that He was born of the Virgin Mary, that He lived a perfect life, that He died on the cross in the place of sinners, and that He did, in fact, rise from the dead the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Faith embraces these facts as true, believes these facts as true, but faith is more than believing the facts, not less, but more than believing those facts that are true. Faith is, secondly, not just knowledge, but secondly conviction. That is to say, faith recognizes the facts have a bearing and an application to my condition. I am convinced not only that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world and that He is a Savior for sinners, but that He is a Savior for my sins, that He can be my Savior. It is the vigorous conviction and the assurance that in my case, Jesus can be these things for me. It's conviction that these things are true for me, that I have received them and embraced them for myself. And I want to say this at this point. I've had conversations with some of the young people here especially who have wrestled with this very issue, who will say something like, I believe that Jesus came. I don't struggle with that. I believe that He rose from the dead. I still don't think I'm a Christian. I still don't think I've been saved. I believe all the facts, but I don't believe I'm a Christian. Maybe this is the very issue you're wrestling with. Faith is not less than knowledge and acceptance of the facts, but it is more. Faith melts into conviction that these facts have a bearing on me and my heart and my condition. But then there is a third thing that constitutes faith. It is the main thing, and that is that faith involves knowledge, conviction, thirdly, trust. Faith must move from knowledge, that these things are true, conviction that they can be true in my case, and trust that they are are true. Faith involves trust, a whole-souled self-commitment to God in Christ, an experience in which we stake all that we are on all that He is, relying and depending on Him and Him alone for our salvation. Faith turns into trust. It is belief. It is acceptance of the facts, conviction that they have a bearing on me. And then entrusting oneself, giving oneself over to the Lord in a whole-souled self-commitment to God in Christ. That's what faith is in its essence. Now, there's another question we might ask that is a different question. That is, how does faith operate? How does it act? I Describe what faith is, but what does faith result in? How does faith behave? How does faith act? The Bible teaches there are certain ways in which faith acts, uh, ways in which faith operates and behaves. What does faith do? How does it work? How does it live and move and have its being as it were? Faith, of course, in the Bible, as it is presented to us, is not a passive or static thing. Faith, the faith by which we have salvation in Jesus Christ, is an active and a restless thing. It is dynamic. It is living. It is forceful. Faith does things. Faith operates in certain ways. For the past several weeks, we've been considering the life of Abraham. We have just two sermons left in this series, this one this morning, and Lord willing, the sermon next Sunday. Now, a number of New Testament passages hold forth Abraham as a paradigm for faith. Kids, do you know what I mean when I speak of Abraham as a paradigm for faith? A paradigm is like a, an example, like, like the greatest type of something, example of something. The New Testament in a number of passages, specifically Galatians 3, Romans 4, Hebrews 11, and James 2, holds forth Abraham as sort of the Bible's chief example of what saving faith is like and how it operates. In fact, Galatians 3 refers to Abram as that man of faith. He is to be an example to all believers throughout time of what faith is like and how faith operates. And we have seen as we have surveyed Abraham's life, that there have been many vacillations in Abraham's faith. At times, Abraham's faith appears almost heroic to us and in every way exemplary. At other times, we've seen that his faith fails and Abraham can be an utter disappointment. I think I have labored to prove in these weeks that the ups and downs of Abraham's faith in those ups and downs, we are meant to see something of our own story, of our own journey of faith, that all of us, like Abraham, experience those vacillations. And at times, faith burns low and faith is weak. And at other times, faith is strong and burns brightly and we feel enabled to do great acts in service to the Lord. We see something of our own journey of faith in Abraham's journey. But now this morning, this week and next week, we come to the climax of Abraham's life, This event in Genesis 22 where Abraham is asked to offer up his son Isaac in obedience to the Lord. This event in this episode sort of stands above everything else we've seen thus far. All the other sort of little narratives and micro events in Abraham's life. This singular episode comes to define Abraham's life and legacy so far as the New Testament is concerned. Here we have Abraham's faith on display which has grown over the years of walking with God, and has accumulated strength and momentum through ongoing experience of His grace and His love and His promises. And here we have Abraham's faith reaching its climax, reaching a point of what can only be referred to as triumph, as he obeys God in the midst of impossible circumstances. And here, perhaps more than in any other passage we have seen thus far in Abraham's story, we learn... What are some of the key instincts and impulses of faith? That is, we see here how faith is meant to operate. If if I'm saying that faith is not static, if it doesn't just remain standing and passive, if I'm saying that faith is dynamic and restless and that it acts and that it operates and that it does things, this passage shows us at least a few ways in which faith is meant to operate and faith is meant to act. So I want us to consider the narrative this morning, uh, particularly Genesis 21, 1-7, but then especially Genesis 22, 1-19, and I want us to consider two of the defining traits of faith that are showcased for us in this passage. We'll consider one of them this week and then the other one next week. But first, let's just open up the narrative, and we'll do it under four main headings. Number one, we'll consider God's promises made. Number two, we'll consider God's promises kept. Number three, we'll consider Abraham's faith tested. And then fourthly, we'll see Abraham's faith proved. Number one, consider with me God's promise made. If you'll just turn back to Genesis chapter 12. You've been in Genesis 22. Ben read that passage a moment ago. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. I want to remind you of what we have seen in Abraham's story and the various promises that God has made and how they have been reaffirmed throughout his lifetime. We know in Genesis 12, Abraham is about 75 years old. He was an idol worshiper in Haran. Uh, His wife is introduced to us as a woman who is barren. And in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. We read in verses 1 through 3 these words, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And to you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed." We summarized three promises that God essentially made to Abraham in an earlier sermon. Three things that are introduced here and then reaffirmed in later passages in the Abraham story. God promised Abraham land, He promised him a seed, and He promised blessing to the whole world through His dealings with Abraham. He promised Abraham land, particularly the land of Canaan, a physical area, geographic acreage there in the Middle East. And of course, Abraham's descendants at time did inherit the land of Canaan through God's servant Joshua. They take the land. But what we learn in the New Testament is that this land, though it had physical boundaries and had a temporary and initial fulfillment under the old covenant, was actually meant to point to a larger fulfillment. That is to say, God's people, those who have Abraham's faith, those who are his sons and daughters, still await the inheritance of the land, and it's a lot more than some land there in Mesopotamia, no larger than the state of Rhode Island, but rather we await, as Abraham awaited, Hebrews 11 tells us, a city whose builder and maker is God. And that those who have Abraham's faith are looking off for a a heavenly country that is yet to come, namely the new heavens and the new earth, which we as God's people, as children of Abraham, will one day inherit in glory forever. That's the final and fullest fulfillment of the promise of land. Abraham has promised land, he's promised, secondly, seed. God's going to give to Abraham a son. Through that son would come peoples and nations and kings. And as time goes on, that promise is enlarged with greater clarity. It is through Sarah that God will give Abraham that child. And it will be a miraculous conception that takes place in the womb of Sarah in her old age. And then the third promise is that God is going to bring blessing, not just to Abraham and his family and the Israelite people, but that God is going to bring blessing for the whole world. That in his dealings with Abraham, God is actually working salvation and deliverance for all the nations, all the families, all the peoples of the world. It is through Abraham's seed that all the families of the world will be blessed. And we have seen, we have learned from Galatians 3, that that promise envisioned the coming of a greater son of Abraham, greater than Isaac. There is coming the son of Abraham who is Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of God who would come into the world and work salvation for all the peoples of the world, such that people beyond the Israelite people group will be saved. Men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will come to faith in this son of Abraham, and they will by faith become sons and daughters of Abraham themselves. Salvation will go to the nations. That's what's promised here to Abraham, though he apprehended it but a little at that time. Okay, now turn over to Genesis 15. There in Genesis 15, the promise is renewed. It's formalized into an actual covenant. We don't know how much longer exactly the events of Genesis 15 are after the initial promises are made in Genesis 12. Abraham's 75 in Genesis 12. At least a few years passed between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, for sure. It's as much as a decade on from the events of Genesis 12. So maybe Abraham's 85 years old now, hasn't seen the fulfillment of the promises, Genesis 15 verse 3, we read this, and Abraham said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. That's Eleazar of Damascus, someone who's not actually his blood relation. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And there we read that great statement, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, then in Genesis 17, turn over to Genesis 17, the promise is renewed again. There also circumcision is instituted as a sign of the covenant. Now Abraham, we read, is 99 years old. So we're nearly a quarter century on from the promise, 25 years have passed, I wonder If you could remember, where were you 25 years ago? Some of you weren't alive, okay? 25 years have passed roughly since the Lord called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of Haran, still awaiting the fulfillment of the promises. And God comes to him again in Genesis 17. Verse 15, we read this, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That's the son, not the son of promise, who was gotten by illegitimate means. God said, No. No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Then finally, in Genesis 18, this completes our survey here. Genesis 18, verse 10, we read this. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And then we have Sarah laughing at the promise of God. In verse 13, we read, The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Just two things I want you to notice in that brief survey. I just want us to appreciate, first of all, the accumulating momentum of the promise and the growing expectation. That God will need to do something. Something's got to give. Uh, little by little, God is closing off other doors and other ways by which Abraham and Sarah thought this promise was going to be fulfilled. God is making painstakingly clear that what He is going to accomplish on Abraham and Sarah's behalf, and indeed on the world's behalf, is going to be accomplished through the unilateral activity of God Himself. There's an accumulating momentum to the promise, a pace to the promise, a growing emphasis on God's unilateral activity. The second thing I want you to appreciate is simply the timeline. 25 years from when Abraham is first called to leave father and mother, to leave his kindred, to embrace the life of a nomad, and he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. Everything up to this point has been Abraham and Sarah waiting for the fulfillment of this promise. That's the first heading, God's promise made. Secondly, consider with me, God's promise kept. God's promise kept Genesis 21 look on with me at verse 1 25 years have passed and then we read this in Genesis 21 verse 1 the Lord visited Sarah as he had said and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised I just want to stop there and say this is not in my notes but there is coming a day when that will be said for each one of us We will see Jesus face to face in sinless perfection and every tear will be wiped away and we will be forever with the Lord who will shepherd us in glory and it will be written over our lives. The Lord did as he has said. He did just as he had promised. Verse 2, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. As the promise accumulated momentum, and as it was reaffirmed, different appointments were made in which God came to Abraham and Sarah and spoke to them. She's acknowledging none of our friends would have expected this, though. No one saw this as the outcome. Who would have said that Sarah would have born a child? Well, someone said, and that was God. But none of their friends, none of their acquaintances saw this as the outcome, but of course God did, and Abraham and Sarah believed Him. There's a sense in which the whole Bible is the story of God making promises and keeping promises. And this is one of the most striking initial examples of that in the canon of Scripture. Here God has promised He was going to do a miraculous thing for Abraham and Sarah. And though it took 25 years, God is never late in His perfect time. He kept His Word. God cannot lie. I appreciated what Zach said in a message a couple of weeks ago. When it comes to the promises that God has made, He is undefeated. He has kept every promise that he has made and those promises that have yet to reach their fulfillment we could have the confidence based on narratives like this counts of God's faithfulness that he will keep his promises to us in redemptive history brother sister in your life God will keep his word he cannot lie that's the second point God's promise kept so we've seen God's promise made God's promise kept but now we get to Genesis 22 the main event that we're considering this morning Thirdly, consider with me Abraham's faith tested. Abraham's faith tested. This is the opening announcement of Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God has led Abraham throughout the latter half of his life. Maybe we don't know exactly how old Isaac is now. Some believe he's in his teens. Some believe in his 20s. Some have even suggested in his 30s. It's been something like a half century since God initiated a relationship at first with Abraham. Abraham. And God has led him every step of the way. He's given him many commands. He has called him to make many sacrifices. But there was always blessing held out before Abraham. The Son is coming, Abraham. Follow where I lead you. Trust where I lead you. There is blessing coming to you in your Son and through your Son. And that blessing was epitomized in that promised Son, Isaac. But now, that which had been promised... That which God had freely given to Abraham, God calls Abraham to sacrifice. He is to give up the promised son. And you'll notice in this requirement, in the text itself, God recognizes and even emphasizes the preciousness of Isaac to Abraham. The Lord says this himself to Isaac. He tells him that he is to take his only son, the one whom you love. And Abraham is told he must be willing to give him up. And he's to trust God as he does so. Now, we know, of course, as those reading the Scriptures, uh, perhaps what Abraham himself didn't know. We know from the framing of the narrative that all of this is constructed to test Abraham's faith. Now, I'll just say this. I don't think we should imagine that God routinely does this to us in the same way. I think we can recognize there's something spectacular going on here, something unusual going on here that God is doing. That said, we do have our faith tested in various ways. Our faith is tried in various ways, and we hope to have the same triumph and outcome that Abraham had. But I think the main point we're to glean from this narrative is that God is testing Abraham's faith in a way that will show us certain lessons about what faith is and how faith operates. Remember, Abraham is presented to us in Scripture as something of a paradigm for faith, to show us what faith is like and how faith operates. He is an archetype, he is an example with respect to faith. And we learn from him how faith is meant to function. And in this case, in the context of desperate and impossible circumstances. So I think what we're to ask of this narrative is this what do we learn? about the nature of faith from this instance in which God tested Abraham's faith. More on that in a minute. Now the fourth and final point as we conclude our exposition of the narrative. God's promise made, God's promise kept, Abraham's faith tested. Fourthly, Abraham's faith proved. Please look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. God tells him to go to Mount Moriah, sacrifice his son. And then the next morning, Abraham rises early to do just that. Apparently, Abraham didn't take days to deliberate, he didn't go away on a retreat to decide if or when. He would obey the word of the Lord. His obedience, as far as we can tell, was total and immediate. Now, we don't know if there wasn't some conflict in Abraham, if there wasn't some doubt mixed with faith. The narrative certainly doesn't suggest so. It's possible, though, we'd be re- reading between the lines. But all I want us to appreciate at this point, at the beginning of the narrative in Genesis 22, is that Abraham, that man of faith, did not consider it an option to disobey the Lord. Abraham, that man of faith, did not consider it an option to disobey the Lord. And that is because faith does not consider disobedience to the promise-making and promise-keeping God an option. So, brother, and sisters, if you are contemplating disobedience to the Lord, that is not an impulse of faith. That is not how faith operates. That's not an instinct of faith. In this instance, Abraham, the man of faith, when he surveys what he's going to do, there's really only one option, and that is to do as the Lord had told him. And so Abraham promptly does, just as the Lord commanded him. Verse 4 now, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So it's on the third day. Abraham is going along with his son Isaac and the servants that are with them. By now he's had a few breakfasts with his son, lunch with his son, dinner with his son. Perhaps they've played games along the way. Plenty of times he could have turned back, but he's determined to obey the will of the Lord. And then some commentators and preachers have acknowledged here a detail in the text that may be an indication of just how strong and robust Abraham's faith was. Notice he says to his servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there. And then in the original, referring to I and the boy as well, it says, we will worship and come again to you. So we're going to go to the mountain. You stay here. And Abraham says, we're going to come back to you. And some have suggested that here Abraham does not consider the idea that Isaac, through whom his offspring would be named, would not ultimately live in this scenario. Here's the confidence. Look, however God's going to do it, I don't know how. I'm prepared to fully obey God. But I do know this, Isaac is coming back. Isaac is going to live in some form or fashion. God's going to accomplish this because God has made a promise and God cannot lie. Maybe that's reading into the text. I don't think so. so they went both of them together. Again, we see Abraham's confidence. God will provide. The idea is that God would prove himself faithful. And the idea that God could prove himself unfaithful was not a possibility in Abraham's mind. God would be faithful. God would provide. It was Abraham's only to trust and obey even in the face of circumstances that seem utterly perplexing to him. Now verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now stop there. You, you see the scene, right? Days have passed. Abraham and Isaac are on the mount now, the wood is laid. Isaac is fastened to the altar. The knife is raised. You see that there in the narrative. See it in your mind's eye. What was going on in Abraham's mind precisely at this moment? Here's his son. Here's the knife. What's in Abraham's mind? Did Abraham expect that at that precise moment, an angel was going to call out to him, And that God was going to provide a ram in a thicket, which he's about to do in a few minutes. Spoiler alert. You know the story anyway. (laughs) Did he think that was going to happen? I don't think so. I think that Abraham expected that the knife would fall and that it would plunge into the heart of his son and that his son would bleed out and die. And I think that because of what is said in Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 17-19. through 19. Just listen as I read these verses. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see that. Abraham is thinking, well, I've gotten this far. It appears the will of the Lord is for me to actually slaughter my son. Well, I suppose he's planning to raise him from the dead. Abraham considered it more impossible for God to lie to him than for his son to be raised from the dead. I'm sure at this point, as far as we can tell, no man had ever been raised from the dead. But Abraham considers it so impossible that God would lie. Well, I guess God is going to raise him from the dead, or something... But it is not an option for me to conclude in the face of the most impossible circumstances, in the most perplexing providence, that God will not keep his word. And he has told me that through Isaac, the son of promise, my descendants will be named. God is going to keep his word. It is for me to trust and obey. And therefore, I will execute what he's asked me to do. But I know, I have the sure confidence, the faith, that if he needs to raise my boy from the dead, he will do exactly that god had made a covenant with abraham he had made sure for abraham to conclude that god would not keep his word verse 11 but the angel of the lord called to him from heaven and said abraham abraham and he said here i am he said do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now i know that you fear god And so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. That's the narrative, and I think those final verses speak for themselves. We'll return to them next week. All I want to do in the minutes that remain is to highlight one of the defining traits of saving faith, one of the instincts, the impulses, One of the ways in which faith operates, and then next week we'll consider a second of the defining traits of saving faith that we see in this passage. Okay, so here is the principle, here's the defining trait of saving faith I want us to consider this morning. Faith derives its life not from outward visible circumstances, but from the objective promises of God. Faith derives its life, not from outward visible circumstances, but from the objective promises of God. We could say, faith derives its life, not from that which is seen, but from that which is unseen. Perhaps you know Hebrews 11, verse 1, their faith is defined in this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There's a hoped-for fulfillment to a promise God has made. Faith is the assurance that God will fulfill His Word. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, that which I do not see, I will possess in time. I'm convinced of this. Faith is the evidence of this. It is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. So consider how this operated in Abraham's case. He hoped for offspring. He hoped for nations and blessings to come through his son Isaac. And he was convicted of the truth that God cannot lie and that he always keeps his promises. But his outward circumstances seemed at least for a moment to tell a different story. You see that. God has made promises to me that through my seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. But now I'm being called to slaughter that promised son. There's an apparent dissonance and tension between what God has promised and what the path of obedience and providence has brought about for Abraham. Well, how does he respond? He responds... With faith that is to be a paradigm for us, an example for us. Faith which is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If Abraham's faith was attached to outward circumstances and the visible appearance of external things, his faith would have failed. He would have concluded that God was a liar and that he couldn't be trusted. He would have concluded that God doesn't keep His promises. He would have concluded that all He had ever based His life on was a sham. because look, God is now requiring something of me that doesn't at least seem, by what I can see, to be in line with what He has promised. When faced with the seeming contradiction between God's promise and what He could see with His eyes in His outward circumstances, and what God commanded Him to do, Abraham would have denied God, disobeyed Him, and failed the test. That is if faith is meant to derive its life from outward circumstances, and that which Abraham could see with his eyes. But that isn't what faith does. That is not how faith operates. Faith is meant, it is given, to attach itself not to that which is seen, but to that which is unseen. Not the outward circumstances of my life, not to my inward personal feelings, but to the objective promises of God. Thus, when Abraham was told, on the one hand, that through Isaac your offspring would be named and that he would be the child of promise and that God would bring blessing to all the families of the world through Isaac... And then Abraham's told, on the other hand, that he must slay his only son. And when Abraham is faced with the apparent contradiction and tension between God's promise and the consequences of obedience to God's command, he concludes God must be planning to raise Isaac from the dead. He, he must be planning to do that which I've not seen. Because I believe his promise, even though my outward circumstances tell a different story. Do you hear me this morning? This is Abraham, the paradigm for faith, that man of faith, whose faith we are to emulate. Brothers and sisters, we are to believe better than we see. When faced with the perplexities and the confusion brought on by outward circumstances and external things, we don't attach our faith to those outward and external circumstances. Faith doesn't derive its life from the trials and difficulties that God brings into our lives. Faith attaches itself to the promise of God and derives its life from what God has said will surely happen. Which means when my circumstances present to me an impossible situation, I say God can do the impossible. When everything about my circumstances and what I see with my eyes says that God can't possibly be true, that is the hour for faith. That is what faith does. That is how it operates. When God's word seems to conflict with what I'm seeing around me, then faith wells up within me and says, God will be true. God will be right. God cannot lie. And though I do not know exactly how he's going to fulfill his promise, I nonetheless know for certain that he will fulfill his promise. And I proceed in obedience based on the sure conviction that God cannot lie, that he will keep his word. God will fulfill all that He has promised to me, even though my circumstances right now are telling me a different story. He has proven Himself worthy. He has proven that I can trust Him. He will surely do it. Because faith does not derive its life from what seems impossible. Faith does not derive its life from my outward circumstances. Faith derives oxygen and breath and life. To taking in the promises of God. Faith has eyes of its own. That can see deeper and further than our physical eyes can see. Faith gives us wings to soar over the mountain of trial and hardship and difficulty. And to arrive safely in the arms of Jesus on the other side. By faith we can do this brothers and sisters. We can know in the midst of impossible circumstances. Perplexing circumstances. Occasions where obedience seems to bring me into the path of difficulty. God is asking things of me that I don't know that I can do. They don't seem to comport with what His promises are. It is then that faith arises within us and says, I can do this. By God's help. I will believe His promise. I will believe better than I see. And by God's promise and faith in His promise, I will find a way through these trying circumstances. It's one thing to think about Abraham's situation, but I want us to apply this to ourselves and to our own condition and the promises that we have from God and the experiences that we encounter that try our faith in his promises. We have promises like Abraham had promises. We have more promises. We have better promises. But faith functions no differently in our case than how it functioned in Abraham's case. We are asked to believe God for big things, to trust God in very difficult circumstances. I'm not talking about like being stuck in traffic or something like that. People, and some of you in this church, have gone through the most difficult things life can offer. Severe trials. And it is in those settings that God is pleased to give the gift of faith and to help us to hold fast to the promises that God has given to us that we might persevere and hope in God God has said he will work all things together for your good. He has said he will never leave you or forsake you. He has said he will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And then your teenage child gets in a head on collision with a drunk driver and is killed on impact. What do you do? What happened to the promise? Is God a liar? Is that an option in your mind? Well, maybe those promises weren't true after all, because they certainly don't appear in this instance to be true. God has said nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He has said He will make you to lie down in green pastures and lead you beside still waters. And He has said He will care for you and provide for you like the birds and the flowers. And then your husband comes home to you and says he never loved you and that he's leaving you for another woman. How do you respond? What happened to the promise? Is God true? Has he lied to you? Has he misled you? The Lord has said, I will not leave you as orphans. He has said he will deliver you from trials. He has said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And then, while helping to clean your neighbor's gutters, you fall from the ladder and become a quadriplegic. I can name for you Christians in these situations. And their trial is no different from Abraham's trial. It is in these moments that the exercise of faith is called forth, burying your own child, being abandoned by your spouse. Being confined to a bed for the rest of your life, not even able to feed yourself. Well, it sure doesn't look like God loves me. Doesn't look like He cares for me. Doesn't look like He has any interest in my good. How can His promises be true? Just look at my life. How can I have faith in the midst of such sorrows and such hardships? How can I have faith in the midst of these circumstances? I don't like the hand I've been dealt and it doesn't seem to be in accord what God has said would be true in my case. How can this work for my good? How can a God who loves me bring this into my life? How can God be true? Listen to me, loved ones. This is precisely my point. This is exactly what faith is for not in the belief that a better outcome is going to come about in the context of your present circumstances. But that in the midst of the tension created by my outward circumstances and what God has promised to be true, I choose God in spite of my circumstances. I believe that though I cannot see with my eyes a way out of this, I don't know how this can be consistent with what God has promised, I know that my God is true. I know that He will do what is right. I know that though great distress my soul befell, the Lord my God did all things well. I can trust in His grace. I can trust in His providence. He has proven Himself trustworthy to me over and over and over again. He sent His own Son to die for me. So in the midst of what seems impossible and deeply perplexing and causes within me the most acute agony and sorrow I can fathom, I will trust him. I will believe him. It is not an option for me to believe that God can lie. And though I don't know the way out of this, I don't know the answer to this riddle, I don't know precisely how it is true that a loving God who has my good in view has brought this into my life, by faith I will trust him. By faith I will walk. Faith will derive its life not from the trial, not from the outward circumstances not from what I see with my eyes. Faith will derive its life from the sure and objective promises of God. Listen to this word from a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. He wrote this in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He said, Oh, Christian, if you have faith, then you must think this way when trial comes. This is the time that God calls for the exercise of faith. This is what faith is for. What can you do with your faith if you cannot quiet your heart in trial? So what do you get by being a believer, a Christian? What can you do by your faith? I can do this. I can in all states... Cast my care upon God. Cast my burden upon God. I can commit my way to God in peace. Faith can do this. Therefore, listen, when reason can go no higher, I think his idea is when I can't make sense of the trial, like I can't reconcile this in my head, When reason can go no higher, let faith get on the shoulders of reason and say, I see land, though reason cannot see it. I see good that will come out of all this evil. Exercise faith often by resigning yourself to God, by giving yourself up to God and His ways. The more you, Christian, in a believing way, surrender up yourself to God, the more you will be enabled to persevere through trial. You hear what Burroughs is saying. I've tried to work this out in my own head. How could standing at the grave of my spouse be consistent with God's plan to work for my good? It doesn't feel that way. I can't work it out. This is what faith is for. Faith gets up on the shoulders of reason and says, I see, I see over this mountain of trial, I see over these waves that are beating against the ship of our faith, I can see land. And I can see God is going to work this out. It might not make sense to you. But faith can do this. Faith can see further than our eyes. It can see deeper. It can penetrate further even to the fulfillment of the promises of God that we await. Three quick words of application and then we'll be done. What do we do with this now? Faith gains its life from the promises of God. That's how I, I persevere, by faith i got to be invested in the promises of God. Three quick words of encouragement will be done. Number one, Christian, think often on the promises of God. Think often on the promises of God. I don't know if this was your point this morning, Mike Clark, that you were getting at in the equip class that you wanted Zach to say. I'm not sure. Faith doesn't derive its life from a contemplation of all my sorrows and trials. Faith gleans its life and is upheld and perseveres by thinking often on what God has promised and keeping a record of his faithfulness throughout redemptive history and throughout my life. So here's the point of application. A lot of people tell me I need more application in my sermons. Put up sticky notes on your mirror with Bible verses. On, on your phone, on your desktop, put a promise on there to help you to reflect on the promises. I don't need help in seeing all the difficult things in my life. I don't need any more help reflecting and pondering my outward depressing circumstances. What I need is regular reminders of what God has promised and God has said will be true in my case. And so, brother and sister, set up some mechanism in your world and in your life whereby daily, multiple times a day, the promises of God are brought before you. Because faith only derives its life from the contemplation of those promises. A second word of application, speak the promises of God to one another. Speak the promises of God to one another. It fits so well with what Zach was teaching us this morning on perseverance of faith and the role the church plays in the perseverance of the saints. Brothers and sisters, we assemble here not primarily to enjoy a pleasant event or to get an encouraging and inspirational message. You must, brothers and sisters, in your life together as a church family, we must together be encouraging one another with the promises of God. We must be speaking the truth one to another, which is a lot more than hanging out together and enjoying one another's company. I would encourage you, brother, sister, make it your aim and your purpose. I'm going to speak truth to my friend. At some point, I want to call to their mind something God has promised in His Word. I want to be a help to their faith to help keeping the promises before them. Listen, I'll just say this as an aside. There are some people that think the best thing you can do for a friend is listen to them and empathize with them. Well, listen, if you listen to someone and empathize with them, they will know that you love them, you care for them. But faith does not gain its life by listening and empathy. Faith will only gain its life by a contemplation of the promises of God. And so listen to your friends. Empathize with your brothers and sisters as we're required to do. But at some point, turn the conversation Christward, heavenward, promise word. Look to your brothers and sisters and say, I hear you, sister, I see you, I love you, I pray for you, I'm gonna walk with you through this. Can I remind you that God has promised He will never leave you or forsake you? And just lay hold of that, sister. Brother, I got a word of the Lord for you. He will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I don't know how he's going to do that in this instance, brother, and I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to talk, and we're going to counsel, we're going to go through this together, but I want to point your faith, I want to direct your faith to the Lord. Direct it to Christ, direct it to his word. Thirdly and finally, throw yourself into the life of the church where we sing, confess, and preach the promises of God. It is so often when people are struggling in their faith that they withdraw from the church. That is exactly what you must not do. We seek Sunday by Sunday, Sunday evenings, and in our small groups, and in our women's Bible study, and in our men's breakfast, and the dozens and dozens and dozens of other unplanned gatherings that go on every week, we seek to set before the people of God a feast of God's promises in the gospel. Come here Sunday by Sunday, midweek by midweek, and feast your souls on the promises of God as we sing them together, as we confess them together, and as they are preached from the pulpit week by week. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that for all of us, you would increase and enlarge our faith. So that our assurance for the things hoped for, our conviction of the things not seen, our confidence in the promises of God, would so overwhelm and outweigh all that is perplexing and challenging and difficult about our circumstances. That when our faith is tried, that what is true about God, what is true about His grace, what is to be found in the gospel would be seen as so much brighter and so much greater and so much grander than whatever trial and hardship faces us. We pray, Father, that we would encourage one another in these things, that we would help one another walk by faith and not by sight. We pray you would enable anyone here who is feeling overwhelmed, feeling that faith is burning low, that you would convince them anew of your promises that they would trust in you, and that they would hold fast to Christ by faith. We know we depend at all times on your grace, so we look to you and ask, please, please increase our faith. Please enlarge our sense of the promises. Make them cogent and palpable and bright and attractive to us. And then, Lord, may, may our faith move to that point of trust, point of reliance, that point of dependence, to embrace what you have said is true, in the midst of trial we pray these things in Jesus name amen as we meditate on the-